0: Welcome to Beyond Borders, the world's first talk show made especially for English learners and global citizens. With me, your host, Ethan. In every episode of this show it is my job to guide you outside of the classroom and into the real world with life-changing insights from some of the world's best teachers, language learners, innovators, and leaders. All here to help you unleash your highest potential in your English and your life. So if you are ready to join our movement of millions and together create a world beyond borders then let's get started with the show. Jack Askew, tofluency.com, fluencycom and teachingeslonline.com, is an online ESL and EFL teacher, a web designer, and blogger. In 2008, he was offered a promotion at the marketing company he was working in, but he decided to quit and pursue his dream of traveling to South America instead. Since then, he has been teaching English online, and he has also worked in schools in Spain and Ecuador. He is originally from Preston in the United Kingdom, but he currently lives in the USA with his wife and two children. On his 2Fluency YouTube channel, he helps learners to break out of intermediate and finally take their English to the C1 level and beyond. And on Teaching ESL Online, he helps teachers to start their own business teaching independently online. So I will apologize ahead of time, I had some audio issues, and so the quality is a little bit less than normal. But despite this, I highly urge you to listen to the whole episode because this was a dynamite conversation and there is great advice here for both English learners and teachers alike. Jack shared with me some details about where his passion for teaching came from and why passion isn't actually that important when you're starting out. He told me how when he moved to the USA, the American accents he encountered were different from what he expected, and how people react to hearing his British accent. We talked about whether it is better to learn British or American English. You may find the answer a bit surprising. We discussed how learning and teaching has changed with the COVID pandemic. It was also pretty fascinating hearing his advice about how it is not too late to start teaching online, and even creating content. You can get started as soon as you finish listening. And if you are an English learner, we also give you some recommendations on how to find the perfect teacher for you online. Finally, stick around until the end for a fun game. That said, let's jump into episode number three of Beyond Borders with Jack.
1: Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here, Ethan. It's good to be here. It's really a pleasure. It's been so long since we connected, since we did a collaboration together.
2: Yeah, I think I've been on the podcast two or three times in the past. Um, maybe the first one was in 2000 and. 12 or 13 maybe around then. So seven, eight years ago. Yeah,
1: it's definitely uh, been long overdue, we could say, right?
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: Just to get started, help the audience get to know you a little bit better. The first thing I thought I'd ask, because I just found an interesting story is how did you meet your wife? Oh, great question. Yeah. So um,
2: I met my wife in Ecuador in Quito in 2007. And I was backpacking in South America. Spent around eight months there. And um, I got to Quito after coming from the US and I was staying in a hostel. And then I was looking at language schools, which ones to go to in Quito, because I was going to do it for two or three weeks. When I got to South America, learned some Spanish, so then hopefully that would help me with the rest of the trip. And then um, I had this favorite language school, which was on one side of town, and my second choice was on the other side of town. And I came out of the hostel with a map, and this guy just approached me and said, where are you going? Where do you wanna go? And I said, to this language school. And he went, okay, it's that way. And I knew it was this way, because I'd already looked at my map, but I would just double check in to see where I was gonna go. But when someone gives you directions, you can't just go in the opposite direction of where they say, so I ended up going that way just to see, all right, okay, I walked that way for a little bit, I'll trust him, realized it was the wrong way, but then I was closer to my second choice of language school, so I got there, met some people, they sold me on the the school there, and it had a a hostel attached to it so then um yeah, I went there a couple of days later on the first night saw Kate um and we just really hit it off and stayed in touch since then. So, yeah, it was it was kind of a, a chance meeting. There were lots of different things that happened to allow us to stay together over the long term. And we got married, I think, two,
1: three years after meeting. Right. So it was very serendipitous kind of get to meet her by going to the wrong school. Well, it's like yeah. fate had something in plan for you, right? Yeah, this guy
2: who I'm never going to see again. Um, but it's all down to him, really. Uh, yeah, I almost so like that...
1: to send him a thank you letter or something, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, I know. It's it's kind of strange thinking about that, how that kind of thing can just happen just out of chance. But, you know, obviously we had a connection and then um, we just we went on a little romantic weekend together while we were there, stayed together. And then I went to visit her in the U.S. while she was finishing up college. And then we moved to Spain for a couple of years before moving to the us that's
1: fantastic one of the things i was actually just thinking too is like that probably would never happen nowadays because you would you'd have like your smartphone and you just would be looking you know down at google maps or whatever and you know i would probably never have talked to you so kind of one of those those crazy things you know that had to happen back in that moment yeah definitely lots of little things that
2: had to happen for for all to to occur but yeah happily married 10, 11 years I think now. That's
1: amazing, congrats.
2: Thank you. Uh,
0: I wanted to ask also
1: kind of taking you back even further, what was your first job? I've had a lot of
2: little jobs um, when I was growing up. So I did, I think the first one I had was probably a paper round, delivering newspapers in the local area, um, which was which was great. Like the first round I had was really easy. They give you an easy one to start with and then little by little they give you more difficult ones. So by the end of it, I was on my bike, um, big pack of newspapers here. It took me about an hour to do, I think. Um, And then I started to do a milk round after that, delivering milk, because it was better pay, but it was pretty brutal, because it was from five till seven in the morning, in the winter, riding on the back of a milk trolley, the cord and then delivering milk to people's houses. And you had to run as well. Had so to like I did Keep that. up with the truck then. Yeah. So th- they start setting off and you had to run and jump on to, to get on there. And my friend, he was a lot smaller than me. So he's, his head was underneath the, the, the top of the truck, but mine was above. So my head was freezing. Some, you had to do it in the rain, had to do it in the snow and it was below freezing So those were my first two
1: jobs. But yeah, I had a lot since then as well, growing up. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. It's kind of like the classic uh, job that people have as a kid, right, is delivering the new or delivering milk. uh, Back in the day, I think I like we had milk delivery when I was a kid. But I don't think that that really exists in the States anymore. Does it do you know if it still exists in the UK?
2: I think it does in the UK. And there's that movement to try and make things local again as well where they p- people want that local farm and the milk delivery i think now it's more people go to a, a farmer's market rather than have things delivered but yeah the, the delivery making a comeback too you know recently where um you know the pandemic people want things delivered they don't want to go to stores but I, i'm not too sure how popular milk delivery is right now in the UK.
1: And I saw you, you mentioned like uh, kind of buying locally, right? Like locally sourced products. Mm-hmm. And I think in our research, I'd seen that that's something that, that you value really highly, that you try to buy locally. Why would you say that that's really important to you? Or, or did something happen that made you kind of like realize that you needed to do that? Yeah, good question. So I've always had that that desire to buy locally.
2: Um, the main reason just to keep the money in the local economy and um, support local businesses. Uh, I work with quite a few local businesses, more informally helping them with their social media marketing um, and online marketing. But yeah, it, it, it just seemed to make a, a comeback. And I had a, a, another round of desire to do this again during last year when it seemed like everyone was just going on Amazon and buying things from Amazon. And the everything was just getting sucked in by those big companies so yeah and a lot of it is down to meat as well I like to buy local meat from a local farm um like the grass-fed meat and then it just expanded from there really so I mean it's it's hard to do it is difficult to do because you have to go out out of your way to do it usually it's more expensive as well and you know you're at home the kids need new shoes, but you don't have that time to go to the local shoe shop. So you look on Amazon, you get them some shoes. It's it's hard to get away from that. But yeah, a lot of local companies now, they're doing online delivery too. So it is getting a bit easier to do now.
1: That's that's really great to hear. It's something I haven't thought of so much, but it, it's like Amazon has just made it so easy to get anything mm-hmm. that you want, you know, in 24 hours and 48 hours or whatever. So it makes it uh, maybe really much more difficult if you want to buy locally to, you know, kind of push yourself out of that, that zone of laziness to, uh, make that effort and, and support kind of your local economy. And, and I suppose to, it's better for the environment because you're not, uh, you know, supporting kind of the freight, the freight shipping and things like this across the country or across the world and obviously mm-hmm. pollute a lot as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A lot. And I mean it's hard to get away from that whole made in China even for local companies um but uh yeah there's definitely for example I've got a friend who has a tea company and she makes tea and she gets the vast majority of her ingredients from local farms so it's like a local um tea making company uh so that that's that's one example of how you can support it. instead of getting the generic brand lots of plastic around there the tea bags, bringing it in from different countries.
1: And I think things tend to taste better as well. I mean, at least like if they've never been frozen, for example, and having to have been shipped, it's just like you're getting much fresher products. Yeah. Um,
2: Also trying to grow more this year. Back in the day, I say back in the day, I'll give you a date, 2013, 14, we had a, a permaculture garden in the house that we had built. And then when we moved from there, we didn't really start it again, but this year we've done it again. The the issue is though, I always tend to grow stuff I don't eat. Um, like I'll grow beetroots and I think I'd never eat a beetroot. Or <laughs> so so this year I've so got what, what do you
1: think it motivates you to to grow those things then? It's
2: just that the idea of it coming from your backyard. Um, so we've planted some blueberry bushes this year we eat a lot of blueberries and again it's just going out there and the children love that as well to go out and just uh they, they love picking off kale and eating raw kale and they never really eat kale normally that's amazing but because it's in the yard they go out there and pick it and eat it raw and the, the same but well, this year i've gone for some spicy peppers Um, lots of tomatoes blueberries and some raspberries as well Uh,
1: it's my favorite fruit raspberries it's definitely like one of my childhood memories is when we go visit my family in washington state and there's like you go all around their property and they had like every type of berry imaginable like berries i didn't even know existed coming from colorado so it's just like those fresh berries that you can get out there kind of wild that's just the that's the absolute best for me
2: yeah and you can just go out into forests here as well and find berries growing. A lot of blueberries up in the the mountains. That's incredible.
1: Uh, all right. And just shifting more into the realm of English. Mm-hmm. So how did you become an English teacher?
2: Oh, it was actually after traveling. So when I was in South America, you have a lot of long bus journeys. And I was, you know, it was before the phone. Um, so I did. I usually had one book with me or... I had an iPod, um, but I was starting to think about what I was gonna do after traveling. And I thought, okay, I wanna continue this Spanish journey and maybe move to uh, Spain to go teach in Spain for a few years. But then after meeting my wife, I needed a job that I could have flexibility with. And I found an online platform called Learnissimo, which I don't know is still around today, where you could post your profile as a teacher a little bit like iTalki, and then students would find you online. And without any experience, um, I contacted the company, and they said, "Look, as long as you can speak English and have conversations with people, then people will love you know learning from you." So I took a few lessons and found I will not say I was a natural at it, but I was a good I was good at listening to people and spotting mistakes and also thinking about the best way to try and correct them. So after taking a few lessons on there, I decided to get my TEFL certificate. And then from there, it just took more lessons online. And then we moved to Spain for two years to to teach there. So I had thought about doing it in Spain as part of a lifestyle thing, but it's quite strange that it was an online lesson was the first one I ever taught. And that's how I got started.
1: I imagine because you've been teaching for probably over a decade now. Since you said you have met your wife a decade ago, or you've been married for a decade, so you've probably been more than that, right? Was this a pretty new thing teaching online at that point? Yeah, I think it was. It was just around
2: the introduction of Skype around then, um, probably two or three years after that. Because when I was traveling, I used Skype to call my parents and to call Kate as well, um, and then I started teaching. 2008 in I think it was in January. So it was a new thing and also that platform it had issues. So they tried to do the whole video within the platform, the um video conferencing software. They tried to create their own and I remember it used to crash a lot. So we ended up taking a lot of lessons on Skype and people's connections weren't always the best, but it we made it work and a few interruptions here and there, but it was still Pretty good for for back in the day.
1: Yeah, two two thousand eight. That's that's pretty crazy. Like, I don't think I even had Skype then. I remember, I like in two thousand eight, I was living in Germany. I would call my parents, and you know, I had to be on the landline. So it's like we could talk for maybe twenty minutes because it was very expensive mm. back then. So yeah, this must have been like very very early days that you were uh, getting into that. So it's quite quite innovative. Something I want to ask about is. Being that you've lived in Spain, you said you you started teaching in Spain. I imagine you learned some Spanish there, right?
2: Yeah. Um, I started learning knowing that I was going to go to South America. And I took the Michelle Thomas CDs. And they they had beginner, intermediate, and advanced. And I remember after taking the advanced one, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm good here. You know, I know, this, I know some Spanish and I could repeat the phrases that he was given. Um, and then when I landed in Ecuador... It was a big realization that I had a long, long way to go. And I think this happens with lots of skills, whether it's learning the guitar, trying to learn a sport, learning languages. You have that initial success and then you think, OK, this is great. But the more you learn, the more you learn that there's a lot more to learn, if that makes sense.
1: That's true. It's like the um, more I think there's a quote like that, right? It's like the the more I learn, the more I learn that how, how little I know or something like that. So yeah that
2: quote. <laughs> I, I tried Something. to say that in my head as well before right. saying it. But yeah. yeah, there is a quote there, which I'm sure we can find. But yeah, so I got there and I did two or three weeks in, in Ecuador. Um And just an example of that was when they started to introduce the um, different tenses and how you conjugate different tenses in Spanish. And I thought, oh, this is, this is a lot. Um But then when I was in Spain, I'd say my level went from probably an A1 to an A2, maybe B1, but I don't think so. And the reason for that was I wasn't really doing the um, learning techniques and methods that were really effective. I was doing a lot of workbooks in Spain, but also I was teaching English. I was living with um, Kate, so we spoke English at home. We had a lot of English teacher friends, so we spoke English a lot. And then when people, the the friend groups that we made with Spanish people, they wanted to practice their English with us. So I didn't throw myself into that immersive Spanish environment for those two years. I was really dedicated to learn, so I did a lot of studying, but I was doing the wrong thing, like doing the workbooks and doing the grammar. And it wasn't really until I moved to the U.S. where my Spanish went from, I'd say again, yeah, A2 to ab 2 um it's probably regressed a little bit since then but that's I started to follow these different techniques that um a lot of polyglots were sharing online at the time and it seems like there was a really good community of them but, um back then and that's when I start to to really improve
1: yeah that's really interesting because you fell into the pitfall that I think so many learners fall into the pitfall of when they they think that studying abroad or living abroad, working abroad, whatever is going to be the magical pill that they're going to, you know, arrive mm-hmm. there, start speaking English or start speaking whatever language all the time, and overnight, you know, practically they're going to become fluent. But that happens to so many students I've had, and I mean, it's happened to me too, and in, in different places. It's just like you end up hanging around people from your native country or who speak your 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 first language, and it's just you know you you don't make that progress. You you really have to work at it, put yourself out there if you want to have a successful experience while you're living abroad. So that's really interesting that, that happened to you and that you actually made more progress in the States than you did uh, while you were abroad, that you were kind of like able to break out of that beginner, lower intermediate level. Yeah,
2: no, it's it's true. And when we were living in Spain, like we didn't move there to, to become fluent in Spanish. That wasn't our only reason for being there, um, although it's something we wanted to do. And my knowledge of how to learn wasn't, or how, how to master a language or get to a really good level. I didn't have that knowledge back then. So, yeah, it wasn't, I was doing the wrong things as well. But, yeah, great experience living there. And I think it just, it, it did give us a foundation of certain words and phrases that you always pick up. Um, but then, yeah, again, it was when, when we moved here that I really uh, pushed on.
1: And you kind of mentioned that you got more into kind of the polyglot community and stuff and picked up some techniques there. Do you remember any techniques that were especially helpful for you?
2: Uh yeah, it was th- the biggest one for me was um Anki, which is the the space repetition software, and also the repetition of phrases, which I've taken on and adapted, and that's what I focus a lot on with the uh to fluency channel. So it was the the ear for it. So if I getting a little bit more specific, um who he does the, the 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 songs and really focuses on the sounds of a, a language. So I did that with French. I took a course with him with French, but I applied those methods and started to learn with your favorite TV show, Friends.
1: <laughs> um, in, Fran- in Friends in French,
2: you mean? In, no, in Spanish now. In Spanish, yeah. yeah. So I took audio recordings from the show, slowed them down, repeated them, and then went to normal speed, and then repeated them again. And the reason I chose Friends was because your reasons too. It's so conversational. It uses the everyday language, and the the way that they dubbed it into Spanish really worked for me. So I was impressed with the the dialogues and the type of language that they used when they took it from English to Spanish. So that, was that that
1: Castilian was, Spanish or South American Spanish? Castilian. That you ended up learning Castilian. Castilian okay.
2: Yeah. So that really helped, that really pushed me on. And then the other one was uh, listening as much as possible but comprehensible input. So this is the, the Krashen, Stephen Creshen territory and a lot of people talked about this too where you think about your level you go just a little bit above it or around that level and then you listen as much as possible to things that interest you and things that you can understand right. and i did
1: that so with it's kind of like that stretch you have to like stretch yourself a little bit it's kind of the yes. same the same theories in sports right yes
2: and it's and it's just going at your level is works for me as well but i i did that through um friends so lots of listening with friends and also th- news as well I found that the news was a great way for me to bridge from that, not being able to understand anything or hardly anything to then go into the next level where I have that base on which I could build. So listening to the news and friends really helped me. That's
1: really, really amazing. I haven't heard anyone actually applying Idaoza's method to like a TV series, but that mm. does make a lot of sense. It's, and it's interesting because I kind of had that same period in my language learning where uh, he was one of the people I followed. And I, I did part of his Spanish course as well and tried to like apply that to other languages. So that's definitely, I think it's called the mimic method. That's definitely a really that's great
2: right. Yeah.
1: technique for people method. to check out. Yeah. Um, and I, f- I think I found him through,
2: did you see that song he did? Yeah. Where the YouTube did video. video. <laughs> did it in four different languages
1: with his ukulele.
2: Yeah. Right. And he,
1: he even does like two languages that he doesn't speak at all, mm-hmm. but he's he's able because he's uh he studied music, I believe. So he has like a really good ear for the musicality within language. So he's kind of like able to break it down as to where, you know, he would listen to the sounds of a language, even if he doesn't speak it and he can imitate it.
2: Yeah. And, and his courses, I think, show that most people can pick that up, too. Um, but the, the reason I did it with friends as well was to not just to get the, the sounds and to produce the sounds, but then also to get the phrases that people use in everyday life. So, you know, the, getting those on repetition and then being able to flexibly adapt them so that you can change parts of that sentence in order to express yourself more freely. Um, and that's doing that method and following that method for a long time. It made me realise just how effective certain methods can be, versus doing something else. Where for me, it's st- studying grammar can help build up that understanding, but sticking with that it doesn't really allow you to internalise the phrases and the language and get used to the sounds and and be able to express yourself freely in, in a flexible way too. So that that, that was doesn't have that, that really same like helps.
1: motivational factor either. No, it's like if you're watching a TV series and kind of like enjoying, there's like some jokes you're laughing at it, which kind of gives you those small wins, right? That you're you're starting to understand the jokes, so it's kind of this sense of pride almost in your progress. Yeah, and if you're just studying grammar or something uh, or using some of those pre-read audios or things, which aren't maybe so realistic of things that you would actually encounter in the country. I think that it doesn't give you that same internal national push. Yeah. I think that's key and being
2: able to understand it because then I, I would watch different TV series in Spanish as well when I was in Spain and it was just that frustration of not being able to completely understand what was happening. You pick up certain things, but it's difficult to really get that relaxation and just saying like, Oh yeah, I can understand what's happening here. Um, and I think taking a TV series that you've already seen in your native language, so you know the plot, you know what the characters are like, that really helps too with our over overall comprehension. Right.
1: So, so you had watched Friends already in English? Yeah. When uh, I imagine when it was on TV or, or uh, yeah. when you were younger. Yeah. Right? Yeah. When I was a teenager. Yeah. I was actually kind of curious about that. So you live in the USA now, and you're from you're from the UK, uh, and growing up with like shows like Friends and and probably, I imagine you probably saw kind of like Hollywood, you know, American movies and stuff like that. Were you at all like surprised when you moved to the USA, kind of the way that people talk compared to, you know, what you'd heard in different media like that?
2: Yeah, it's uh, a little bit because when you're watching a TV show, it's um, the the dialogue, it's never exactly like what it's like in real life or you're not going to encounter those same types of dialogue. So it is a little bit different. And then you also have the uh, differences in, in accents as well. So but Boston for example, that was the first place I went to. Um that that was a a great start to listening to different accents. And then after spending some time in the northeast, I went to Charleston in South Carolina and Everyone speaks very differently there, but also the whole culture and the way people walk. People aren't in a rush to go places like they are in Boston and New York and D.C. Uh, so that that was really different. But yeah, I, I think it's... There were just some phrases that I didn't quite understand that what people were using and how to really, you know, apply those to everyday life.
1: Have you found that your kind of your vocabulary that you would use or expressions you'd use have changed since you've lived in the States? Oh, definitely.
2: Yeah. I do say you all a lot because we're in the South and it's a very useful phrase that, because to distinguish between the, you know, you singular, you plural, it's different in different places. Like where I'm from, I think it's, we used to say use, um, and that's quite popular in the U S as well in certain areas, I think. Is that right. right.
1: I've, I have heard that. I'm not sure where in the States, they would use that, but we uh, would have like in the South, you all, if, if people actually say like you all or y'all, mm-hmm. it's definitely pins them maybe as being more Southern. And in my part of the States, we probably would say either, we, we could say just you for the plural, but we'd also say a lot, you guys. So it's kind of oh, like you're yeah. speaking to a group, but I think yeah. a lot of people now it's it's losing popularity. Maybe it's like, got it's, it's got more of that like masculinity in it, but uh, that's one that's really common in the States as well. I think there's, I saw a map.
2: Showing the different parts of the US and what was most popular. Yeah, I love those maps. Um, but the the other thing, I mean, I say soccer now. And it's, it can get a little frustrating because I say soccer and then someone in the US says, well, you're from the UK, don't you say football, football? Um, but then if I say football, they say we call it soccer here. It's called soccer. And then going back home, I can't say soccer in the UK. But then... If I do say football, they say, oh, don't you call it soccer now? You live in the U.S. So uh, there needs to be this universal w- word for it. It's quite frustrating. Um,
1: I mean, the universal word, I think, is football. It's just the Americans. The Australians also say soccer. But, I mean, it's just like a couple countries that have decided we're going to invent a new word for the sport that everyone else calls it football. And for me, too, having lived so much time outside of the United States, now that word makes a lot more sense to me because it's like literally the whole time pretty much you're kicking the ball with your foot. Whereas in American football, there's hardly anything involving the foot. I mean, it's like normally you're carrying the ball. So I think that's definitely the Um, the Americans are the ones that got it wrong. (laughs) Well, it was actually invented
2: in the UK, the word, in England, because it was association football and that a sock became soccer as like a colloquial term. And then um, they, I think they stopped using it in the 50s. But then the, the Americans started to continued using it. Um, I think that's, I was reading about this. I think it's the same for fall as well. For because, fall and autumn, right? Yeah, I think fall was an a English invention too. And it was different parts of England that used to use it. Again, I was looking at these maps and it showed like in the 50s. I think it was in the northeast or around Hull in the UK where they still said fall. But then it, it died out it just autumn became the default word, but it used to be fall in certain parts of England too. Yes.
1: Something I've actually heard, I don't know the accuracy of this information, but I heard that the English spoken in the United States today is more similar to the English that was spoken, you know, kind of at the period of Uh So it's it's more close to how British English was spoken then than common day British English is. I heard that too. I think that's kind of like a arguments against like proper British English or people who say, you know, that the right, the correct English accent oh, yeah. is the one from the UK, right? Oh,
2: yeah, definitely. And then within the UK, they'll say, you know, the received pronunciation is the correct one. Um, I think it's 2% of people use that that one. And obviously, there are various degrees of how deep you go with it and how much you
1: use it. Yeah. But definitely, back in the day, I don't think anyone... Maybe the Queen, but I think that the received pronunciation didn't really exist as a separate. Right? No.
2: Um it's still like I think at private schools, like your Etons, um, people at maybe certain colleges within Oxford and Cambridge University, it's still there. And if you listen to people in their sixties, some journalists, then they definitely have that now. And it's just not becoming as common because I think it's it's also known as a BBC um accent. Where people at the BBC, I'm not sure how formal it was or how, um, what kind of rule it was, but people tend to use that accent or had that accent. Yeah,
1: it's uh, it's kind of being like proliferated by, I suppose, the news stuff like that, which people, I guess, that tend to judge a country's the correct way of speaking by maybe how people speak on TV, right? Mm -hmm. But that is like a really interesting point. If only two percent of the people. In the UK, speak that, like is that the best accent to be putting your focus on learning? Because I think most English learners, if they're focused on the British accents, they tend to learn RP, right? Yes.
2: Yeah. Um tend to that that's the one that's mainly taught. But I think also just with the 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 way that learning has changed and how more independent teachers are becoming the focal point for a lot of learners, where teachers from all over the UK, if we're just taking the uk as an example we have people um like emma from the north um there's me as well who i'm from the north but my accents become more neutralized recently um so people from different parts are are just putting their accent out there um as a way to say "Look, look this is the way i speak there's no right or wrong way to say it um I used to get a lot of comments about certain vowel sounds that I used um, because in the, where I'm from, we used to, I used to say this a lot, it's changed a bit recently, but I would say um, bus instead of bus, bus. And it's like a, a schwa sound. And then there's also things like um, saying the G at the end of long, which, I'd long, instead of the long. Yep, yeah, so I'd say the G at the end. And people used to write comments on my YouTube channel saying, what you're doing is really strange. That's not normal. And then one day I was doing a a live YouTube lesson going through those maps. And it said, if you pronounce long with with a G at the end, you're probably from Preston or Bolton. And I'm from Preston. So it just made me feel really happy that I wasn't doing this strange thing that no one else did. But it was actually specific, not to just a region, the Northwest or even Lancashire, but from a city where I'm from in Preston. Yeah, that's
1: one of the crazy things you have in the UK is you could like drive 20 minutes to another city or or maybe you're even in another region at that point, but that the accent can completely change, I suppose, just because the difference with the US is the US is much newer. So in general, I think we've had like less time for these accents to develop, especially just with the, the fact that much of our history, we've had TV and radio and things like this that have kind of standardized more the accent that people speak. But I think in the UK, you have all that history backing it up so people were more isolated and like speaking, you know, for a really long time. So it's really interesting seeing how cities even have maintained kind of unique aspects like that to their way of speaking.
2: Yeah, and I'm I'm intrigued to see how, how that's going to change and if it will change due to just this centralized culture where people are, you know, on YouTube and they're online all the time. If if that's going to change, because I have noticed that a lot of areas of the UK or the UK in general has been Americanized in terms of saying like all the time, um, awesome. So many different phrases that I noticed when I went back that people are now using. Whereas, a great example is I was like, Mm-hmm. People in the UK so say like, that I said,
1: now. right?
2: Yeah, I said that or is... I went. But that's
1: a very American phrase then for you. Yeah,
2: that's an American okay. phrase, but people in the UK are now using that. I've noticed this. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I think the UK equivalent would be either I said or I thought or I went. Mm-hmm. Um, but people are saying I was like, now.
1: That's really interesting. And you're living in the States, you're living in a fairly small town, right? Are you still mm-hmm. in... I believe Asheville, North Carolina, right?
2: Yeah. Same place as so, Vanessa.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Same place as, as Vanessa. And I imagine it's not like a huge international community there, right? So do you how do people tend to react when they they hear accent? Well,
2: where we live, it's full of what they call transplants. So people have moved here from all over the US. There are quite a lot of Brits here too. Um I think I've met around 30 in total. And then, it's not a huge international community, but it's it's big enough for people not to overreact when they hear a, a foreign accent. So, yeah, everyone's moved here from somewhere else. It's, you don't say, you don't say like, oh, are you from Asheville or elsewhere? You ask the question of how long have you been in Asheville just because it's it's just like that over the last 20 years people have moved here we have a few friends who are native to to Asheville, but it's quite rare but what when i was so so here i don't get people don't talk about it a lot which i like because i've been here 11 years nearly mm-hmm. and um i'm i'm an american as well now i've been an american for oh, two wow. years <laughs>
1: thank
2: you yeah so um yeah, it's, it's nice that that doesn't become the focal point of every conversation. Mm-hmm. People tend to to wait a little bit longer. But when Kate was in, do you know Athens, Georgia, the University of Georgia?
1: I've never been there, but I've heard of the, the town yeah, and the, the university.
2: That that was different. So I, when I was there and I spoke to somebody, they immediately said, oh oh my God, where are you from? Why, why are you here? Um, that and that, that was kind of fun at the time, you know, just to, just to have that happen. But it's, it's good that I don't, that's not the focal point of every conversation now or, or like they'll say, you know, tease me about the accent, um, in a fun way, obviously, or ask me some, just the, the questions you get asked all the time, you know, um, so it's it's good that it's that's not the whole thing that happens.
1: Have you felt like in the states people treat you differently because of your app because they they realize that you're you're a foreigner? Not not here,
2: I don't think so. But but in Athens they they might have done a little bit. Like there was a lot of curiosity, which is great. There's been a few moments of you know some conflict or some you know, times that I've been in a pub in Virginia and, you know, someone didn't like the British or something, but generally speaking, um, people are curious, I'd say
1: more than anything. That's, that's good to hear. (laughs) Good to, good to hear from from the U S that people aren't, you know, aren't treating you poorly because you're from across the pond.
2: It's really, that is really rare, Mm. really rare. Um, there's a lot of joking and teasing, but it's it's all fun.
1: Right. Imagine it probably gets a little bit old after 11 years, so. though. Yeah, that, that that's why I
2: say it's it's good that it's not the central thing every time. Uh, but the, the, then again, people—it's a big soccer town here. People love soccer, so they ask those kind of questions, and that's something I love talking about a lot. That's great.
1: Uh, and kind of we were talking before about accents and stuff so it's i think you're really interesting as a teacher because obviously you're from the uk you have uh like you said you have an accent from the from the north do you like as a brit living in the usa uh do you find that or let me restate that um a lot of my students ask me a lot you know should which accent should i learn should i focus on on british english or american english or what's the best one so as a brit living in the usa how do you normally respond to that type of question?
2: Yeah. um, It's something I get asked a lot. Uh, I I always say, I I used to say this, I used to say, focus on the one that you think you're going to need the most because it's not, when it comes to accents, it's not necessarily about what you produce, but it's just, it's what you listen to and what you hear. So if someone is going to go study in, London, for example, then it's wise to focus on the the British accent and get lots of different parts of it. But even then, when you when you're in London, let's say you're going to encounter accents from all over the world, and you're going to encounter American accents, Australian, um, people from France, from Spain, from Eastern Europe, everywhere. So having that exposure to different accents is going to help too, Um, and then. Yeah, I think uh, it, the whole what accent do you want to produce thing, I don't think it's, uh, it's one of those issues where some people can listen and, and just produce it perfectly or they don't need that much training to do it. Whereas the vast majority of people are always going to retain their their initial accent and it's a wonderful thing to hear. Like People love listening to different accents. They love to hear it. Uh, I know people from, I know people from all over the world here and they have strong accents sometimes, sometimes it's it's weak, but it's all about being able to express yourself and have people understand you and then being able to understand what people are saying in, in a variety of different accents too. So yeah, I, I think also just curiosity as well, have a play with it, try different things, try to imitate someone from New York Try to do it from, you know, Northern England or try to receive pronunciation as well. There's lots of different things to do, but I think most people are going to retain their original accent. And it's great. It's wonderful to listen to. People love it. People want that. There's an know. exoticness to it,
1: right?
2: Yeah. Um, I, I modify mine quite a bit here, depending on the situation. So like, if I'm at a restaurant, I, uh, I'll say Water instead of water um because there's so many times when i ask for something like you know some water and the person doesn't understand because it's it's different there are i think four differences there in the the sounds or one of my favorite beers is bell's two-hearted and i'll say two-hearted instead so then they understand me the first time i ask um but there are certain things I still say. I, mm-hmm. I've started saying tomato a little instead bit. Tomato. Yeah. Tomato. Tomato. <laughs> um, but th- then again, people understand that one. Mm-hmm. And I still say vitamin instead of vitamin. How
1: about H-E-R-B? What you're growing in your garden.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Her, her. Got, a, got an H on there. Herb. You would say the H. That's what yeah, yeah. American would say. Herbs. Herbs. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I do it tactically rather than something that's intuitive. Mm-hmm.
1: But that's really interesting because it's it's more in that sense, you're doing it more for intelligibility because you mm-hmm. don't want to have to repeat yourself three times to get the, the beer that you ordered or to get a glass of water or whatever is the case. But you're not trying to sound American. I mean, it's like most people think they're not coming from a speaking country. And so they have to if they're moving to the usa they have to start speaking with an american accent but i don't know like a, a brit or an australian or someone from canada moves to the usa i mean it's kind of like more interesting if you maintain your accent and stuff kind of like the things we were talking about before that it can bring up conversation it can help you even to like be a conversation you know, to get to know people. And that might be especially important when you're new to the country and you don't really
0: know anyone, right? Hey there, Real Lifer. Just a quick break from this episode to share a big announcement with you about the recent launch of the brand new Real Life English app, where Ollie, Andrea, and I, your Real Life Fluency Coaches, will guide you beyond the classroom to live, learn and literally speak English in the real world, which is to understand natives, speak with anyone and connect to the world. So how do we accomplish that with our app? To start with, you can listen to the Real Life English podcast, even this very episode, with digital transcripts so that you can follow along and develop your listening fluency, plus check dozens of definitions of all the most difficult vocab, idioms, phrasal verbs, slang, and much more that you won't find anywhere else or in any other podcast. And how would you like to develop real life speaking confidence at the touch of a button by speaking with other learners while making friends across cultures? Sounds like a dream, right? Well, now with the real life app, it will be a dream come true. Download the app to listen to our podcast with transcripts and definitions whenever and wherever you want, and speak with people from all around the world. What are you waiting for? Join our global community today by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or going to www.reallifeglobal.com app or search for the Real Life English app in the Google Play or Apple App Store today. And let us guide you beyond the classroom to live and learn and speak English in the real world. Aw yeah!
2: Yeah, so I have a uh, Australian friend here as well, and um, again, it's just people love listening to that accent, and it does again, it like incites that curiosity of oh, where are you from? And that sounds great, you know. People just love those those
1: accents. Yeah, much better than like another boring American, right? They're not boring. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the thing actually, a
2: lot of people here. In, in Asheville, uh, when they move here, I don't hear many strong accents when I'm here. Like, I don't hear a strong New York or... There are a few people from Wisconsin that I hear, listen to, and that can be quite strong. But um, maybe it's just me and my ear that I've not quite picked up on the, the differences, but it doesn't seem like I hear a strong southern one even. Well, when you get 10 minutes outside of Asheville, you hear it all the time. But within the city, it's, um, it also has a lot of tourists too. But you, it's hard to think of a time when I've heard a strong Texan accent. So yeah, things are quite neutral here and easy to understand.
1: Probably makes it a good destination as well. I mean, you have the, the university there it's a place uh, I imagine most people listening have never even heard of in the states right Asheville no it's it's coming up on list
2: now um so people like the tourists are just coming in bigger and bigger numbers every year due to it's known for its its beer it's food and outdoor lifestyle so camping and hiking mountain biking um so that's three things people love
1: <laughs> sounds exactly like uh Boulder where I went to university I and mean, it's yes. like a very transplanted community it's in the mountains it's all about like outdoor lifestyle and then yeah all the the food is like beer and like pubs and stuff like this Mm -hmm. very big yeah everyone says it's it's the same boulder
2: and um and nashville very similar and colorado i guess in general outdoor everyone bikes beers and breweries and and now it's become a, a a big foodie place um and also high-end cocktail bars now have become a thing.
1: I didn't didn't experience that so much in college. I suppose I I probably didn't really have the money to go out for high-end cocktails.
2: No, they're expensive now too. It's like $15, $16 a cocktail sometimes.
1: Oh my God. (laughs) That's absurd. Uh, All right. I just wanted to kind of like shift gears. So I think one of the really interesting things is that you have experience teaching... English learners, obviously, with two fluency, but that you also have another business where you help teachers basically to start teaching English online, which most people listening, I'm sure, see the importance of that more than ever, because after the pandemic, it's like, there's more value in being able to do anything. So if there's any teachers listening to this, or, or maybe even a learner who wants to do tutoring or help other learners... How would you recommend that they get started teaching online?
2: Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So, uh, funnily enough, last year during the pandemic, um, that brand just blew up. I had a, I had a video on how to teach online using Zoom, and I made it in 2015, and it, you know it had the hundreds of views every month. You know, just teetering along, and then when March hit, it just went crazy. So uh, I got a lot of teachers getting in touch with me during that time. And I think the pandemic just really, it just sped up the the whole transition from the, I don't like the face-to-face learning and language school learning to people wanting to learn and teach online. And it seems like it's just been a trend for a number of years now, but it really just sped up last year. So yeah, in terms of getting started, it's it's easier than ever now to to start something. Um, When I first started, it was mainly about getting a website and using SEO to get people onto that website and then using things like Craigslist and those types of sites to put yourself out there as a teacher to say, look, I offer these lessons. You can pay for them and, and we can go on Skype and we can do that. But now, the i i I always say there are three ways to teach online if you're a language teacher specifically you can work for a company there are a lot of companies who are doing this now you can become a freelancer on sites such as italki or you can teach independently where you have your own website and you, you do your own thing and then if you're teaching independently, there are many ways to, to earn. You can do the one-to-one lessons, you can do group lessons, you can sell online courses, you can sell um, books, you can um, make money through YouTube by advertising, you can do a podcast and then have the subscription model work in there. There are so many different ways that you can earn now as an online teacher. But I say if, if you're just intrigued about it, and you want to dip your toes in and see what it's like, I recommend people start Instagram accounts or um, even a TikTok account these days and create micro-content um, videos that 15 seconds long like the reels or TikTok videos or videos that are a minute long, photos, create stories, and just start building an audience online of, of English learners who are going to find your stuff and then connect with you and have that chemistry. And then they'll want to learn more from you and maybe get the paid lessons further down the road. But that's become so much easier because also just thinking about social media in 2014, 15, it was Facebook really. That was the only one um, that people used. And to create a video on Facebook It didn't, people didn't really make videos on there. It was mainly YouTube, Mm -hmm. but now it's, you know, it's all about this, isn't it? You can, as a teacher, you can just um, grab your phone, do it in portrait mode and create a reel, which I've been doing some reels lately and yeah, it's so easy to do. It is really easy to do and that way as well, you'll get used to just giving a lesson online whether this is recorded a video or a one-to-one um so
1: that's what i but especially in the last year there's been like a boom right of people of people creating content for teaching of especially like you said with reels and tiktok kind of taking off becoming really popular platforms how would you recommend that people stick out in those places because i don't know you could make a video on Trying to think of something. Okay, we recently did a video on can versus can't, and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of videos out there on that. Uh so kind of if you make a video on a common product like that, even though it might be something that's really helpful to a lot of people, if a lot of other people have been doing it much longer than you have also made that video, then Mm -hmm. it probably will just be lost in the ether, so to speak. So what kind of recommendations do you have, you know, now that especially past the pandemic, that there's just so many people doing this online, how can people stick out? on one of those platforms? Yeah, so there's some specific stuff you
2: can do, like you can really just choose like a, a learning or a teaching style, a te- have your own style of video. You could focus on, to begin with, just phrasal verbs, for example. Like phrasal verb of the day and just teach phrasal verbs every day. So then people think, okay, this teacher is gonna teach me phrasal verbs and this is a very specific reason why I should follow this teacher. You can do that for anything, really. You can do it for grammar. Um, you can do it for idioms. You can do it for exam preparation, like the IELTS exam. But I I just think the main thing to do is just, just to be yourself, and that way you're going to attract the types of learners who will most benefit from you, the ones who see you and think, okay, this is my kind of teacher. the The competition thing is, I, I, I see how people starting out think, okay, there's so many teachers who have all these this massive following, and um, how am I going to compete with that? But if you just if you get started, you'll you'll have a few people at the start. You'll have to like maybe DM people or go to groups or comment on people's posts, try to tell all your friends about it to tell their friends just to get that ball rolling. But then it's just a matter of building up your audience as you go and have that snowball effect occur where, you know, with your channel, that's just doing incredibly well. At first you started that channel.
1: How many, like the first few videos, how many views did you have?
0: They they actually did very
1: well, but it took a long time. It's kind mm-hmm. of like, uh, we just did a few as an experiment on learning with TV series and then i don't know if it was like several weeks or, or months and then all of a sudden we started we saw them taking off mm-hmm. like and we're like hey there's really something to this and then we started producing videos every i don't know for two weeks every week and eventually we started doing every week uh and kind of in, in saying that i think another really big thing there for anyone who wants to start this is to commit to doing this however often because i think yeah. that consistency the the success really comes out of consistency out of showing up every week so if you're making videos or reels or whatever the case is, if you commit to doing like one per week, uh, the same day, same time, every week that you're going to be putting that out, then that allows you to start getting a following because people can trust you know, every Wednesday at 9am, there's going to be a new lesson from this person. I've definitely seen that people who are able to do that, which it's, it's obviously difficult because you have to show up every single week or mm-hmm. every so often, they tend to be more successful than the people who just do a video whenever they feel like it. Right. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah.
2: I, I do the weekly YouTube video now and the weekly podcast and, um, yeah, I've, I th- well, your, your example is perfect, isn't it? Where you have the learn English through TV series. You have a very specific format of the video that you do. Um, so you focused on one thing. People show up to your channel to get that one thing. And, uh, at first, you produce the videos and you say a few weeks, few months, it started taking off. Um, but the, I think going back to what we said earlier, so many more people are moving online now. So when, when I first started my YouTube channel, there were some teachers with 30,000 YouTube subscribers. And that was like the ceiling it seemed to be back then.
1: Now the ceiling is what, 10 million 15 million. I think the person who has the most, maybe there's someone with more, but the person I see who has the most is, uh, learnings with Lucy. Mm-hmm. She's at least growing the fastest. And I was actually, my mind was blown the other day. Cause I, I looked at hers and I saw she has like over 6 million now. Yes. And so <laughs> it's just like hard to keep up with her, you know?
2: No, but that, but that should get people excited because it shows that millions of people are subscribing to an independent teacher and a huge market and then um the other thing with that is that there's just so much to go around and learners will watch like when i say which youtube channels are you watching they're watching nearly all of them that i know of um and then new ones come about and i've just seen people grow so quickly these days um i forget her name there's a, a girl from wales who reached out to me a little while ago and I shared her channel to like give her that initial boot, well help her with the initial boost, and since then she's just killing it now on Instagram um, and elsewhere. And she, yeah, she's stuck to similar formats as well, where she'll do you know the fun reels and the fun TikToks, and then that that's her thing. So she's she's done incredibly well, but yeah, it's consistency. I'm not that consistent with my Instagram um, channel. It's something I kind of go in and out of again and in and out of again. And I noticed that obviously you leave it for three weeks and then you post something and that doesn't have as much reach. Um, but the I'm constantly thinking as well what I should focus on to help me stand out. So what's working for me at the moment, which is I find incredible for two reasons. Firstly, it's I didn't expect this to happen. But secondly, it's taken down my workflow a lot. Is the audio only lessons on the YouTube channel where I'm doing a podcast and then just putting up an image on YouTube with subtitles so people can read along. And those videos are doing great. Um so I do there's so many
1: different possible formats and stuff that you can choose from, kind of depending on what you're comfortable with and maybe what you're interested in and what you use the most, right? So yeah, that sounds like a really great low bear uh low barrier to entry i think that's the expression <laughs> yeah uh way to get started because i think a lot of people might be camera shy a lot of people i think don't like listening to their voice but that's something that you can you can get over quite quickly if you yeah you do get over if you it. get used to it right so that's a, a nice thing for people to think about is that you could do just audio with like pictured subtitles i think like you said they're very important because it's very helpful for people to be able to read but that could be like a a nice little trick that someone could use to get started if Mm -hmm. you're a little bit camera shy.
2: Yeah. And also like starting a podcast, that's something you can do. Um, I don't recommend what one thing I, I made this mistake when I created my first YouTube channel, I think it was 2012 Um, JDA English. It was called Jack Derrick Askew English. I, I thought, okay, what's going to make me stand out is the production value because people were doing the basic camera things with bad audio. So I got a great mic, I got a great camera, I thought I'm gonna edit all the videos and I spent eight to 12 hours on my first video, my first five videos, each video, and um, they didn't do as well as I thought they were going to. But I put all that production effort into it, I thought I've gotta keep up with this now. so it, that was really a tough thing. That's why I just say, you know, again, Instagram reels, it's on your phone. You feel more relaxed recorded on your phone as well rather than a professional setup. Just to have that easy production value and easy way just to create content to to start with. So then you can stay consistent with it. And then if you want to up that production value and the time you spend creating content, it makes more sense to do that once you have a larger following, which can then snowball into an even larger following. And people who follow you too, they'll see that uh, progress that you're making in terms of the way you produce your content. And they'll appreciate that and think, okay, this channel is, or this Instagram account, this teacher is someone who's trying to always improve.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is great. When someone's following you for a long time, I have fans of ours or or students Mm -hmm. that Told me that you know I've been watching for like years, and it's it's amazing seeing kind of the progress and stuff. So that is kind of cool when you you find someone early on and stuff, and they keep at it. But just kind of, and I think what both of us were saying is, in a nutshell, just keep it simple. Keep it as simple as possible at the start, right? So don't worry about fancy equipment. Just use your phone mm-hmm. and do whatever you can just to make it as easy as possible to show up every week and create a new piece of content. Because it's kind of, I think, two is once you have a lot of content once you're doing it a lot. A lot of them are going to be bad, but some of them are going to be good. And when you're doing it consistently, right? And it's kind of... If you're not doing it consistently, then it's less likely you're going to be able to get a home run on one of them. Yeah. And by doing it, that's how you're going to improve. Of course. Yeah. It's a learning experience too. I think you have to see it that... It's kind of like you're saying the first ones didn't do as well. You You set these really high expectations for yourself. But if you see it more as like an experiment or a learning, Mm -hmm. learning opportunity, then you're going to probably have a lot more fun with it. Definitely. Uh, And just to kind of, as we're coming towards the end of the show, uh, I wanted to quickly take it on the other side of that, just for the learner, because we talked about that. There's so many people coming online now, creating content and stuff. And for most learners, I think that they, The plan used to be like, okay, I need to improve my English. It's a new year, maybe. You know, you're starting the year, Mm -hmm. you want to take your English to the next level, and you would just be like, okay, what English schools do I have near me? You go there, you sign up for a course, they pair you with a teacher. I think the problem there is though, is that you would not necessarily always have the best teacher for you because you know, maybe that teacher doesn't align with the goals that you have. Maybe their style doesn't really align with how you learn best. Maybe you just don't have good chemistry with that person. So I think there's a really big opportunity here because there's so many teachers coming online. So you could find ideally that perfect teacher who has the right style for you, who you have great chemistry with, you have a lot of fun in class with, uh, and that is just you know a tremendous teacher. And so they're really able to see your needs and, and help you to reach those goals. But being that there's so many people online now, how can learners, if, if they're wanting to get a teacher online or start learning online... Do you have any recommendations for them to find the right teacher for them?
2: Yeah, I think you can start on YouTube and find a YouTube teacher who you vibe with. Um, A lot of teachers um, offer one-to-one lessons. Some don't. So obviously, you know, not every teacher who's on YouTube wants to or is teaching one-to-one lessons. So I think that's a good place to start, you know, support the independent teacher and then you can also check out platforms like italki as well, where um, there are so many English teachers on there. Some offer low-cost initial lessons. So a lot have a video as well, so you can watch their video and just see, okay, this is somebody who I can work with or not. And then, yeah, have a look around. Like like you say, um, you can find the teacher who is very specific to you and your needs. And going back to what we talked about before with uh, niches and different areas of English to teach, if you're studying for the IELTS exam, there will be an, an easily accessible IELTS teacher who is very experienced and has a lot of knowledge with this and really can help you because you might be in an area where there are no teachers at all or no teachers who teach IELTS. So yeah, just do a bit of research. I think YouTube's a good place to start. And then um, italki from there.
1: Yeah. I, I've used italki a lot in my own learning. So that's a great website because when you go, you can get like a professional teacher who actually has like a degree, or you can just get professional uh you can get a tutor who is someone I think who doesn't have a degree necessarily, but still have experience helping people to learn and they have very good English themselves or they're a native speaker, depending on what you're looking for. But uh, one of the things I've found really useful, either doing that or something else I've done is use local websites, which can be good if you're actually living in a country where the language you're learning is spoken. But either way, something I found really useful is trying multiple teachers. So Mm -hmm. book like a few classes, you know, when when you're first starting out, book a few classes over the first couple of weeks with different teachers. I'd say at least three, possibly more, depending how many you find that you think could be a good fit, and just see, you know based uh, i think on I talk it too a really common thing is that you can take trial classes so it'll be like yeah. much cheaper it's probably just like 30 minutes but like see you know who is the best fit of me the best fit for me you're going to be much more successful when you kind of have a batch of teachers that you can choose from right yeah
2: definitely yeah you can go out there try a bunch of teachers and see what which one works best with you
1: i think that's kind of like the beauty of this thing uh, that now we have so many teachers online is that really it's easier than ever you you have that, that paradox of choice a little bit but it's mm-hmm. easier than ever to find someone who's going to be a great teacher for you.
2: Yeah. It's the same for, uh, listening resources as well, where it's that you can sometimes feel overwhelmed by which video am I going to watch today? What am I going to listen to? But if you can find, I I, I tell my students to really take your time to find the best listening resources for you and your level right now. Um, a graded reader is a great example where you can get an audio book, which is perfect for your level. And then, uh, it's just amazing that we have access to it all now because I remember when I was learning Spanish yet and took a mini course at university, There was I couldn't go online and listen to Spanish. It was all through the CDs that you got in the books that you had to buy from the course.
1: Yeah, It's as really, I don't know, maybe they're not all. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but... A lot of them, I know that I even used when I first started teaching. I had to use these in my classes, and it's just like the dialogue was horrible. It just was not at all what you would actually encounter, you know, if you were mm-hmm. going to an English-speaking country or or traveling or anything like that. So I know it's they're made to kind of give you the vocabulary and stuff, but it's much better nowadays that you have access to so many. They're like audiobooks, like you are saying, graded readers that are actually like made for English learners, or just watching. Like I, I loved like your advice for learning with with a TV series like friends actually like, you know, using an audio program to slow it down mm-hmm. or just watching, uh, some videos on YouTube. I think like vlogs can be a really great thing too. If you have yes. a more advanced level, you can actually watch vlogs. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I made a video on that years
2: ago and vlogs when they first started becoming popular. Um, but they're still there. Lots of vlog people still vlog all the time. So, yeah, it's good because you get that repetition. Um, TV series I like because of the repetition of characters, the voices, the accents, the language as well. Um, I, I think the
1: repetition really helps in, in those cases. Yeah, I think that's, that's really key. So as we're just kind of like wrapping up, I just wanted to ask like a, a rapid-fire question. So... If you could create a video or, say, give a TED Talk even that every English teacher in the world would see, what topic do you think you would choose or what would kind of your key message be? Yeah, I think um, the I'd, I'd probably stick with two. The
2: comprehensible input, the, the listening that we've talked about and getting as much listening practice as you can. And then um, it would be the uh, imitation method, um, the one I've adapted a little bit. The I call it the LRRC method, listen, repeat, record, and compare, where you take audio phrases, you listen to them just one at a time, you repeat them and record them on your phone maybe, and then you compare the original audio to your version, and then you can adapt what you do with your mouth in order to make the right sounds and to, sometimes it's like where you have the informal pronunciation or relaxed pronunciation, the linking together, and just to practice that. Um, and I think it, it covers all your bases. You're doing the, the listening, you're doing um, the, the speaking, you're working on the sounds of English, the different areas of pronunciation, the fluency accuracy and also you're learning sentence structure and grammar at the same time as well and you're doing it in a more natural way through sentences and that and that repetition so i'd i'd focus on those two things
1: yeah i really love that because you could use that too with like any of the resources we've talked about so you could download a vlog or you could download an audiobook or you could use a tv series and like with any of these do those kind of exercises and it also might help you just to get exposure to different types of English, like different mm-hmm. ways that it's spoken or different accents or whatever is the case that you need to kind of reach your, your English goals. But that's a really great piece of advice. I'm sure it would make a killer TED Talk.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. So just to wrap up, we're going to do a very quick game. Actually, I did this one with Vanessa. It was quite interesting. So it's a word association. So basically, oh, yeah. I'm going to say a word. And you have to say the first thing that comes to mind. And it, your answer is just one word. But of course, you can kind of expand on why you chose that word and stuff like that. But uh, kind of a brain game. Okay. So the first one is fluency. Two. There you go. <laughs> just the first thing that came Very to mind. Self explanatory, right? Yeah. <laughs> so your your website, your channel is two fluency. So if that's surprising for anyone. All right. England. Football. Football. That's interesting. America. Burgers. Burgers. That's like a very, very stereotypical. Do you like eating burgers or is it just... the uh, oh, I love
2: burgers. Yeah. American dream. <laughs> yeah, The first thing I did in Boston um, is I got a, uh, a cheeseburger at a bar with a pint of Sam Adams. And it was... Yeah, so just in my
1: head, that was the first thing I had to do when I got there. That's absolutely fantastic. Do you find like American hamburgers, cheeseburgers, are they better than the ones you had in the UK?
2: I think so, yeah. Yeah, and I...
1: I get that, I go to the local farm
2: when I cook them quite often, so those ones are really good, um, and, but then again, the here in the US, I think it's, they're starting to get too fancy with the burgers, like they'll put on all this different stuff, and like sugared or candied bacon, and then make it really sweet, and then three different sauces, and like lots of different, you know stuff but i do like the burgers here generally yeah
1: i don't eat meat anymore but like one of the things when i was younger and i did eat meat one of the things i loved in the u.s that is very rare to find outside of the u.s is like it has different names it might be called like a mexican burger or a texas burger and it has guacamole and jalapenos usually oh, and i love that because it's like a little bit spicy and it's got the, the guac yeah. in it I like, I like guac and, and jalapenos on burgers. Yeah, definitely. And the cheese all melted mm-hmm. on there. I usually now I would do it with a black bean burger, but that's yeah, still pretty rare. That works the there. same. <laughs> so that's that's fantastic. I love that America though is is associated with burgers for you. Uh, traveling
2: desire to go again. I know that's more than one word, but just the desire to go traveling.
1: Is that mostly because of the pandemic or kids or a combination of things.
2: Yeah, I th- I think the kids are a little bit older now, so um it's a little bit easier to do but but the pandemic too like that we were going to go to europe last last summer and it just you know it got cancelled and then we were thinking about going to costa rica but then the testing things were it's going to cost us a lot of money and then if we got if any of us got tested positive while we we're there it's a the two weeks quarantine with kids so
1: that's yeah. a scary thing. Yeah. <laughs> being stuck but, in a foreign country under quarantine.
2: But the good news, I mean, the U S is so, it's such a great country in terms of the the diversity of, uh, of everything really. So we're going to do a bit of travel in the summer.
1: Fantastic. Yeah. The U S is a great place for a road trip. Definitely.
2: Oh, credible place for that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. Fatherhood. I okay, get amazing.
2: Um, I was going to say, cha- I was going to say challenging, um, the well the idea that came to my head was different than i was expecting but i couldn't think of one word so um because you have this idea of what it's like but then it's just it's just completely different and there's so many things practical things that you don't know about before you become a, a parent that you know just on a day-to-day basis do
1: you think like traveling having had world experience do you think that that's helped you in parenting at all? Or is it giving you certain things that you want to teach your children that if you hadn't, maybe you wouldn't value those as much? Maybe. Um, maybe not like in a direct way. Although I was reading
2: a book to my daughter called, I think it's Mrs. Rumphius. I don't know if you know it. And it's, it's wonderful, but it, it's about um, a, a girl who then goes traveling around the world and then she passes on certain lessons of that to children in in the village. And but the main one is just to explore the world, and then but also come back and make things more beautiful. Um, wow, that's amazing! Event. I definitely
1: have to look that up for my nephews. Sounds like a, a great one. All right, uh, let's do this one. I guess passion. Passion. Okay, I'm getting
2: ideas, but not being able to think of a, a word. Um, I'll say necessary. Necessary. Yeah, but but not everything because um, there are certain, like for example, teaching English. I didn't have a passion for teaching English before I started, um, but I, I cultivated that passion over time. And it is necessary to to have that passion for something in order to stick with it and do well with it. But there are lots of other things that come into play at the same time, but it, yeah, I'd say it's necessary for, for most things that you want to do.
1: Yeah. That's like motivation. Like People tend to give themselves the excuse there's this sort of resistance that they'll encounter and they give themselves the the excuse that, you know, I need to be motivated to get started. I'm just not motivated right now, so I'm not going to do it. But really the motivation comes once you're doing it. If you, if you, I don't know, you you have to write something or create a video and you don't want to do it, but if you sit down and you get the paper or you turn on the camera or whatever, it's like, it'll, it'll come as soon as you start doing it. So you just have to do that first tiny thing, right. To get yes. all rolling. Yeah. Make it, I used to say, make it easy to
2: get started. So what, for example, making a video, I have everything set up in here and I just put one plug in and then everything turns on. So it's, it's really easy to get started. Um, but yeah, go back to the phone. It's another way, you know, it's just so easy to, to start recording. Yeah. You're, Yeah, make it easy to get started, and once you get going, it it just comes, and then you don't want to. Then you don't want to stop.
1: Have you ever heard of the? I believe it's called the Kiss Principle, and it's Kiss stands for Keep It Simple Stupid.
2: Yeah, yeah. I people used (laughs) to use that a lot in the um, marketing department I used to work in. Um, (laughs) It was a little overused, let's say.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. All right, Jack. It's been absolutely wonderful. Uh, no, it's been quite a quite a long interview, but it's just gotten so many gems of wisdom. For I'm really happy for both like learners listening to this and teachers listening to this. Hopefully, there's some actionable things that they can take out of this. But just before we finish, I just wanted to ask if you have any asks for our audience.
2: Um, I guess uh, well, one thing that's come up a lot is um, to like really go out there and and find the stuff that's going to work for you. So um, yeah, find the the right audio that you think is best for you find a teacher who works for you um and just be curious like go out there and explore all the different channels and instagram accounts find some teachers with you know a lower amount of followers um try them out share some stuff um but yeah just be curious about all the learning resources and and how you can also learn the different accents, try different accents and and don't worry too much about getting it right or wrong or which one's best and which one's, you know, which kind of accent you need to do. But yeah, have that curiosity to go out there and
1: learn. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I think curiosity is such a, such a great characteristic to have. If you want to learn anything, it's like, that's, that's kind of the kindling that you need to light that fire, to light that passion. As you said, like, maybe it doesn't come at the very beginning, but if you have curiosity and you're trying a lot of different things, and eventually you're going to get that passion for something. So it's a great place for to, uh, to leave people with, great message to leave people with. And finally, where can people find you? So maybe you could share both for, for learners and for teachers. Yeah. Um, so to Fluency,
2: if you just search for to Fluency on, on Instagram or YouTube, uh, you'll find me. And then um, also to fluency.com. And then for teachers, it's teaching ESL online um a good place to start is a website teaching eslonline.com
1: fantastic and we will share all this also everything we've talked about today links to the children's book that you mentioned even uh in the show notes which you can find in the description of the podcast so jack again it's been an absolute pleasure glad we got to catch up and definitely we need to not wait so long before we have another conversation
2: yeah definitely thank you really enjoyed it today
0: Thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the interview. You can find all the mentioned links and resources from this show on the show notes at reallifeglobal.com. It is also linked in the description of this episode. If English fluency is important to you, then remember to check out our Real Life app where you can practice listening to native speech and speak with other learners from around the world while also discovering new cultures. You will find that linked in the description or just search for Real Life English in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. For now, remember that no matter what divides us, that which unites us is far greater. See you on the next show.